Welcome, y'all, to the Direct Examination Podcast. I'm Dane Phillips. And I'm Joseph Bias. Thank you so much for listening, uh, for your clicks, for your downloads, for following us on social media. Of course, you can always follow us on social media at SC Law Pod. And you can go to our brand new website at sclawpod.com. We appreciate the comments. We appreciate the tweets. We appreciate the DMs, everything that you do. We certainly appreciate it. You know, this is, as Dane and I say all the time, this is a labor of love for us. And uh, it's nice to know that uh, you're listening and that you care. Dane. Even the hate mail. We, yes. we appreciate everything. So Honestly, if you're going to take the time to even write a nice, clever <laughs> piece of hate mail, we really appreciate that too. We do. We we appreciate the grammar in that hate mail, the <laughs> Kaba splices, everything that you do for those hate mails. We certainly appreciate it. Dane, how are you? Uh, you know, I'm just living that like, share, subscribe life. And so if you're listening to this podcast, you need to like, share, and subscribe it. Tell your parents, tell your friends, your significant others. We're trying to get the word out. Like I said, it's the labor of love. Uh, we certainly don't do it for the zero dollars. And in, in fact, it's all the money comes out of our pocket to do it. But we absolutely enjoy uh, being able to provide this podcast and I hope you continue to keep listening. And one of the ways we do that is to get uh, more listeners. And so uh, definitely tell everybody with the guests that we have, the illustrious guests, it's clear that we're providing value. We are the best legal podcast uh, in South Carolina, maybe the only, but the best. I and mean, so, clearly. <laughs> uh, what can you say? Uh, but with that, in the perennial line of illustrious guests, we have yet another one today. Our guest today is professor of law at the University of South Carolina School of Law, where he teaches and focuses on labor and employment. He's been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and Fortune, and now his career is complete, the Direct <laughs> Examination podcast. He has published the Supreme Court's new workplace in 2017, where he examined the intersection of recent workplace and procedural case law. His new book, got to sell some books here, is the virtual workplace where he examines how recent technological developments, <clears throat> excuse me, have impacted employees and employers. Welcome, Professor Joseph Siner to the show. Oh, and, and actually, this is actually a two-timer Siner, right? Mm-hmm. We've had your wife on the show. That's true. It was a staple and cornerstone of the law school <laughs> when we were there, and now for the Bar Foundation, and we've come full circle, and we've now had Professor Siner, or as he wants me to refer to him now as Joe and after you, after you, after you've been a student, it's just a, uh, <laughs> it's, right. it's a weird line to cross. You got you got the more illustrious signer out of the way first, and now, you know, <laughs> coming full circle here. So, <laughs> uh, Joe, thank you so much for joining us. Um, yeah. So, y- y- you write this book, and we're going to get into what the book's about. Uh, it comes out, so it's available now for pre-order on wherever you find your books. I got mine off of Amazon. And of course, if you clicked on this uh, link, you can see a link to pre-order that book, which comes out in May. Uh, and you can go ahead and pick up your copy and have it ready for the time it comes out. Um, so we'll get that out of the way. But I want to ask you, so most people during the pandemic, you know, you eat a lot of Oreos, you gain some weight, you, you know, memorize every Netflix show ever, you decide to write a book. Can you talk to us a little bit about what was the mindset about, you know, taking on this project and, um, and what made you want to do it? Yeah, well, I've actually been working on it for a couple of years um, before the pandemic even hit. And in um, you know, March, obviously things changed. And, and what I was looking at primarily, which is still really important, and we see the issue coming up more so 
uh, nowadays is with the platform-based economy and how you know somebody like an Uber driver or Uber Eats or um, any one of the various platforms that we may use now or people may get jobs on, how we characterize those types of positions and things like, you know, are they employees? How do workers like that unionize? Uh, how do they bring class action claims? Um, all, the whole gamut of employment rules with specific look at technology in, in the platform-based economy. And then the pandemic hit and was like, well, hold on a second. Let's, <laughs> let's take another look at this. Um, you know, this was maybe a few months before we were going to press. And it really provided uh, a, a really helpful example of how and the importance of this type of technology really impacts and is going to transform the workplace over the next year or two. So I really, really helped thread the book together in a number of ways to look at and use the pandemic as a really important example of this emerging technology. And one of the funny things that you see is, um, you know, I used to litigate these claims for years and employers would just fight tooth and nail to uh, resist having somebody work at home. And now they're requiring it in many instances. And it's just this complete transformation of the workplace that I think everybody's still trying to get their head around. Well, I mean, the way I look at it is I, I feel like it was inevitable, but the pandemic has now sped up what was going to happen 20, 30, 40, 50 years, whenever that, you know, that time in, in space where everybody would normally go virtual. I think the pandemic has just thrown us now into this and new virtual world where, like you said, it's not unusual to work at home, right? That's the that's the normal. And there you got all these issues. And for lawyers, for me, you have the security issue, right? You have confidential files, you have people working from home. Does your book really go into that part of it as far as the security part or is it mainly in the employment uh, aspect of the legal issues and not just on security and uh, confidentiality of the workplace files, uh, those kind of issues. So what it's really focusing on, on is the, um, the the working relationship. Right. So how has that working relationship changed in light of new technologies? And then how is it going to change in light of the pandemic and how we define employment? So one of the, the and, and it's funny, we go through these cycles and I think we're in another cycle right now, but, but these laws were created a lot of them were created in the 1930s uh, and some of them were created in the civil rights era of the 1960s. And we're trying to figure out how to take platform economy and fit it into that, those laws, right. which are, we haven't changed. And you know, the, the, one of the, the classic examples of that um, over time has been the real estate industry, like real estate agents, what are they? And it was kind of a different feel and the court struggled with that in the 80s. And um, you know, you see there's a there's a you know well-known case um, from from one of the judges you all know about whether or not strippers are employees in South Carolina. The boom boom room. There you go. There you go. I know, I know all about it. <laughs> Dave, you may not want to say that on a recording. No, I, I represent you, know, you know all that's about a work it. that is a workers' comp case, but I represented an individual who uh, his case revolved there was there was a uh, other uh, accusations that occurred in the boom, boom room. Sure. Sure. <laughs> so look, I, I've had a trial where the boom, boom room was, uh, was testified about. 
So, but that's the question, right? I mean, are those employees, and it's so hard to define, you know, that right. clearly Congress wasn't thinking about that in 1932, right? Right, right. One of the issues that's come up with uh, us, and I know a lot of employers, is this concept of off time and leave time during mm-hmm. the uh, pandemic. So, you know, normally you go to work, if you're not at work, you use leave, and, <laughs> you know, it's that easy. Now, Somebody could be at home, essentially not doing anything or the and, and not have to use leave or the opposite is true, where we've had employees who are constantly working and usually they would be taking leave time for that. Mm-hmm. I, you know, that's one of these issues. Like you said, it never was addressed in um, previous laws because we didn't have the situation. Well, and the funny thing is they've done a number of studies on this and the the while we kind of have this perception of people just not doing anything at home, they actually are working more uh, on, on average and uh, their productivity has gone up. Um, and of course, employers are saving a ton of money by not having right. to pay for you know, travel, for pay for um, as much office space and you know, bill- literally billions of dollars have already been saved uh, from that side of things. Um, the problem comes in where do we draw the line of how do employees draw that line between what's work and what's home? And that can cause some serious um, mental, psychological health issues that I think we haven't fully grappled with and that I think employers need to be prepared for and get ahead of with respect to providing things like employer access to those types of services. Well, in terms of litigation, what I was kind of thinking of, because you do have that dichotomy of the person yeah. who's not putting in the productivity hours, but then you, you had the example that Joseph gave where someone's working a lot more than the standard 40-hour work week. And as you know, with the employment part of it, you have overtime laws and compensation, and there's a lot of end up being class actions for big employers uh, not paying appropriate uh, wages. How do What's the foreseeable litigation that that we're going to inevitably have? Because there's going to be big corporations where I assume there will be class actions where people are saying they're not being compensated either for uh, the, the overtime hours that they're working uh, in that blurred line of, uh, you know, I, again, I know that there are applications that can be downloaded on people's computers that take screenshots every 10 seconds and monitor the, you know, mouse movement. And there's all the different things employers can do, but uh, what's the foreseeable litigation uh, now that we're in this virtual workplace? I think, I think, uh, I think employers really need good counsel um, and they really need good advice in this era. And, and, and what I mean by that is, it creates new possibilities for litigation, exactly as you outlined. And employers need to be particularly cognizant of establishing parameters um, so that they don't have, because usually, oftentimes what's gonna happen is, is employees are working these hours and the employer's not aware of that. Um, it may be that they're trying to, to dodge uh, you know, overtime laws and get you know, squeeze employees as much as they can. But right. um, if I'm advising an employer, my concern would be um, and of course, I'm not giving legal advice here, but my concern is people are working and you're unaware of it. And you've got a group of people doing that and they're saying, well, you know, you asked me to do this task and it took 60 hours um, and I did it. And look, and as you said, I can screenshot and prove I was working that whole time. So I want my overtime. 
Uh, and so the employer's got to set those boundaries and say, look, if you are at 40 hours, you need to let me know you're only permitted to work from X and Y. And that carries over not, I mean, you identified wage hour, but obviously workers comp too, um, you know, where somebody may or may not get injured. Um, <laughs> uh, unemployment laws. I mean, it runs the whole game. Honestly, it's, and I just have to go back. So the people that are kind of wondering like boom, boom, room workers, th- just to put you some context, because it's such a crazy yeah. thing that we're laughing about. Uh, it, it, this is a workers comp case, a South Carolina one where, and it, the issue was whether they're an independent contractor, a stripper gets shot. Uh, yeah. And uh, it, you know, are they an employee or are they an independent contractor and work, does the workers comp uh, provision apply? And it's such an interesting opinion to read because it's, it's just <laughs> unique. And I will say there's a footnote that gives the definition of make it rain in that opinion. By one of the judges, right? Yeah. So I, I guess kind of related to that somewhat i'm going to try to make a uh, i was gonna say where are we going yeah (laughs) one of the interesting things that we've had to deal with and i know that um your your book probably covers is this concept of a changing idea of even harassment so when everyone is working virtually you know you don't have the traditional and and you know, I'd say stereotypical harassment that you would have at the workplace or the water cooler or whatever. Um, but you still have employees who legitimately have concerns and employers who have to deal with it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and harassment uh, has been, in many ways, um, harassment in the technology sector is akin to what we saw in the banking industry in the in the 80s and the 90s where it was just you know the i'm sure you've both seen the wolf of wall street or read the book and that's what you're seeing i mean there's just so much detailed harassment in the industry it's really unfortunate and there's a variety of of reasons why that takes place from just educational opportunities um where where more males have access to that type of educational background and, and are the ones that start these companies and they tend to start them at a younger age, oftentimes, you know, dropping out of college to do it. So they don't have the proper foundation um, and know how to act. You know, they're basically acting like you would act in a, in a, in a frat room and you can't do that. And it's causing um, a number of women to exit the industry uh, and it's providing, you know, a real detriment to those type of women that would want to get started in that industry. And it also starts from the, the standpoint of just capital, right? I mean, that's where these are the same people. It's, it's this, this vicious circle of, you know, these are the same people that are getting provided these opportunities to start these startups. Um, and I think there needs to be a real major realignment to bring that into focus. But that is one of the, this is the industry where, you see more harassment than just about any other. So with the virtual part of it, people seem to have, it's that weird boundary. I, I've noticed even in uh, virtual court, you know, people, yeah. you know, somebody said somebody lit up a cigarette in virtual court. I've seen a, people laying in the bed, you know, while we're doing an official court hearing. And well, there's so the famous, I, the famous uh, flush heard around the world, right? Somebody flushed the toilet. I in the saw Supreme that, right? Court, exactly. In the Supreme Court hearing, right? Exactly. So in the workplace, I certainly could see where somehow people are losing that professionalism, that normal boundary that would be there in the workplace, but somehow because they're in a virtual setting, uh, interacting with, uh, you know, with coworkers, is there, from an employer standpoint, the training that has to go in to kind of cover these new issues, uh, ha- 
is there an area that's certainly there that's going to have to be dealt with by again as, as your as we said the general counsel issues is the training that has to go into employees is trying to make sure that these issues are covered so the employer yeah. can say that they, these issues have been actually addressed with the employees ahead of time yeah and it's very i mean it's very isolating the technologies right and so we are not a, as aware as you say without the water cooler conversation we may not, not even be aware that the harassment's taking place i mean one of the points of the whole me too movement is you know the great mission of awareness. And right. now that's sort of being undercutted by the fact that we're not able to, as employees, talk amongst each ourselves and it's, it's more difficult to do. And as you said, from the um, you know, laid back approach that you know this this um, that workers may have because they're now at home and this blurring between home and work, it can make things too casual. And on top of that, we're being recorded right now, right? And right. so many of these exactly. meetings that would not have been recorded in the past are now being recorded. And so anything you may say or do, now we have a visual of that. You mentioned earlier that, and, and I'm putting a simplistic view on this. So yeah. I'd say most employees, if not, not all, but most employees probably enjoy uh, some of the benefits of working from home. Companies are you know, making money hand over fist for not having to pay for things. I mean, you know, geez, I'm, I know law firms have to be loving the fact that they don't have to send <laughs> their uh, attorneys to CLEs or everything and that, you know, save money on travel, save money on. So everyone is more or less either making more money or saving money. Mm-hmm. Where do you see this going as far as, and we'll get to kind of the, the gig economy with Uber and everything. I want to ask you a question about that in a second, but as far as, you know, the working from home, do you see employers because of these potential litigation issues kind of pulling back? Or do you think yeah. that now that we've crossed this line that, you know, this is our, our reality? That, now? that potential litigation is peanuts compared to what's being saved. Uh, and you, there's been studies on this and one in, one in six, the, the anticipation is uh, one in six workers who are currently working at home will continue to work at home after the pandemic. And 30% of workers would be willing to take a pay cut to do just that. They like it so much. They like the flexibility um, of that position so much. And in the past, even though somewhere around 20 to 30% of jobs can be performed at home, pre-pandemic, only about 4% of the jobs were actually being performed at home. So it's pretty clear that, you know, once everything, um, you know, hopefully subsides, you're still going to have a large segment of the workforce who's still working at home because employers are saving so much money and because employees like it. Well, just real quick, one of the things another lawyer told me this week, in fact, because I said we're having you on, um, what another lawyer told me it would be absolutely insane that now that everyone has this technology to just now not use it. And right. it, just the thought of it, just Doesn't like, hey, sense. I have Zoom where I can talk to you in Myrtle Beach and I'm in Columbia, but I'm choosing to drive across uh, the state for two and a half hours. Anyway, anyway it's to me, well, it's, it's crazy. The thing is five years from now, Zoom is going to be like a dinosaur, right? We're going to be... Right, right. Uh, I mean, we, you should start working on your avatar now because we're going to be, you know, we're going to be all in virtual. I mean, seriously, who who had heard of Zoom two years ago? Sure. And five years from now, it's going to be, we're not even going to recognize this technology. I mean, it's exciting, but anecdotally, so I have a good friend uh, that I grew up with. 
he, he works for Facebook. They've now allowed him uh, to, he's moved back to South Carolina in the last yeah. month. Yeah. There they, you, go. They, you know, so here's a, uh, you know, one of the biggest companies in the world who certainly, from what I can tell, uh, they, they're, they're giving him the green light to, you know, we're not coming back anytime soon, move where you like, you're going to work remotely. And yeah. so, you know, they, he, he's got a, you got a young daughter and the family and they want to move back close to home and they were able to do that. And so I'd imagine, uh, obviously they're on a different time, uh, timetable than most businesses, but that's probably a good, like you said, a good anecdotal, you got one of the biggest companies in the world deciding to already kind of make that call that for the foreseeable future, everybody, they're going to keep everybody at home. Yeah. And, and for, and, and as another, just personal like that, I was working on this book real hard this fall. I'm like, I'm not going to, not going to do any conferences. And, you know, I got an invitation to one that was virtual. I'm like, well, you know, I don't have to go there. I don't have to get in the hotel. I don't have to, you know, spend all the money and, and be away from home. I can do it just basically two hours of my time. So hard to say no. Yeah, exactly. So it makes that, you know, that accessibility key. I will say from South Carolina standpoint, a couple of things um, I want to hit on just real quick. Sure. I do think with South Carolina's strong at will presence, we're particularly well suited for this. Um, and to, I, I know I'm from Detroit originally and after the great recession there, it took the, that industry, the motor industry, um, a long time to recover because they were so entrenched in you know, labor um, issues and things of that nature. And I think South Carolina will be, is well suited to adapt. But I, the other thing, one area where I think South Carolina may take a hit is in the coastal regions. Um, because a lot of the travel industry is going to see a major realignment here for the same reason I just gave. People aren't going to be doing as many conferences. Um, and so a lot of that business is going to start to dry up. And, you know, a lot of people, you know, travel to Myrtle Beach to, to attend whatever, um, you know, right. event or conference they might have. And I think you're going to see less of that, um, which, you know, again, I don't know how exactly the state reacts to that, but that's one area where I could see um, potential drawback to this. One of the interesting, and we don't have enough time to get into all the ramifications of this, is you know our industry, you know, ed higher education, because again, it's easier to have a student who is in California attend your class. Um, but I don't think anybody would um, deny the fact that it you lose the experience of being in a higher education. I mean look, I'm just an adjunct and I can tell the difference between my students pre-pandemic and now. Uh, so even if, you know, we do go back or if this is our new normal, I think there has to be some legit conversations about not only the um, legal aspects of it, but, you know, is it the best thing to do? Is it the right thing? And, you know, that's beyond yeah, like I said, that's a whole different can of worms, but uh, it, <laughs> I'm sure you've seen that as well, Professor. Well, I don't think there are some interesting, you know, aspects to it, though. I, I teach and I don't think either of you were in my alternative dispute resolution class, um, were you? And but anyway, so I've been teaching that and it's fascinating to do it in this environment because I literally at one point was running a mock uh, mediation in the classroom while simultaneously breaking the virtual component up of the class into a virtual classroom where they were sub breaking up into caucus rooms, which was all created <laughs> virtually. And I was right. establishing this myself. And this is, if you told me, again, I was doing this, would be doing this a year from now uh, or a year ago, I would have been like, 
yeah, there's no way. I don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> exactly. Right. But, <laughs> but it is fascinating. And one of the things is I used to go around the room and people, they act differently when the professor's, you know, nearby and listening and taking notes. And, but I can literally go pop in and out of these virtual rooms without anybody even knowing I'm there. And so it does provide from a feedback standpoint, there are certain advantages that, um, I don't know. It's just, it's been fascinating to try to do. I was, I was, I think like a lot of people hesitant at first, but I'm right. like, well, you know, I'm just all in now. <laughs> yeah, <you need> <laughs> first well, I just, I just pulled up this, uh, magnificent piece of, uh, paper that I wrote in your class and I'm just oh, admiring my FMLA, uh, 30 page <laughs> or 20 page research paper that I had to write. Uh, and so, what from that standpoint, obviously FMLA is not directly impacted from a virtual workplace, but what are some of those issues? I know that's such a big thing and how different that that's what I learned through that research paper is how different the United States is compared to the rest of the world, or at least of most of Europe of how we deal with time off with family issues. And so do you foresee any impact with virtual workplace and FMLA? I mean, obviously the, the bare bones of it doesn't change, uh, but ha do you see it evolving or? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a great question, Dan. I mean, it's the same thing that with all the other issues, are these employees? If you're an employee in this virtual context and you get FMLA leave, assuming that these are, I mean, clearly Uber is gonna have 50 or more employees if those drivers are employees. Um, so it's the same. It goes back to who is an employee, uh, and that's what the law is struggling to. What one judge put it, it's like trying to fit a, a, a square peg into a round hole, trying to, to figure out these laws and apply them to this virtual sector. And that's, I think, you know, at some point, the Supreme, the Supreme Court's either going to have to weigh in or Congress is going to have to step in and clear it up because it's just there's a lot of confusion uh, over what that is. But you're right, and and the United States continues to be as as you know your stellar paper pointed out um <laughs> well you know four years ago uh, had, a, only, had a great professor <laughs> we're the only industrialized country without um without paid family leave. uh and um i do think it's one of the ones on the on the one of the next blocks to fall i think you will see an increase in the minimum wage at some point in the near future and i think uh, there's a lot of support across the aisles for some form of paid family leave, even, even the Trump administration. I think there were um, elements there that were in favor of that um, because there's a lot of advantages to it, right, for employers too. Um, and so I think you will see that. And I think you may see the leave extended uh, from, from the 12 weeks that are currently provided. We're going to, unfortunately, we're running short on time and we're going to get to the war story in a second, but I'm curious about the book process. So yeah. you said that you kind of had an idea and started on um, the uh, book. And then of course the pandemic hit, just like everybody else, it kind of threw everything for a loop. When the planning process for something like this, do you mind kind of sharing how that worked? Like kind of when you started looking at things and, and the process to getting to the point where you're on Amazon as public, uh, published author again. Yeah. So, so basically what happens is, you know, at least in the, in the academic setting, um, you, you, you write articles for different law reviews, like the, you know, the, the South Carolina law review or other journals. Um, and uh, you start to see patterns and trends as you write those shorter pieces. 
And then, um, you know, with respect to the workplace and the Supreme Court, I was able to, to see some major trends um, that I was able to put together in a book in 2017. And here I saw the same thing with the virtual workplace. I mean, it was just clear that it was something that was worth getting ahead of. Uh, and so you, you write a book proposal and you submit it to different publishing houses. And um, I've been fortunate to work with Cambridge now for the second time. Uh, and then, um, you know, basically they give you some space to, to uh, uh, and some parameters of, of writing the book. And you have to go through the, the process of getting copyright and release for different images and um, things that you may want to include. Uh, and then there's, an ed there's a full editing process that takes about 10 months where they give you, you know, feedback on different um, portions of it. And of course, at the same time, you're sending it out to your colleagues in the, in the field and getting input. Um, and then uh, you get to the last, the home stretch where I'm in now and uh, you think it's done and then they send you it again and they say, we made this one change. Are you sure it's okay? And then you have to make sure they didn't actually change anything else. And, uh, <laughs> um, you know, there's a lot of that back and forth. Um, but now I think at, at least as of last week, it's finally off to the, to the printer. And yes, if, you're, if, you're finally done. <laughs> take deep breath. I can't, I can't handle any more pandemics. So. <laughs> So, Professor Seiner, uh, the author of the Virtual Workplace, Public Health, Efficiency, and Opportunity, um, we have you on. We would be remiss if we didn't ask you the same question we ask all our guests. Of course, you have a varied background in both, um, you know, academia and private practice. What is your favorite war story, a story that you would tell at a bar, you know, to a class, maybe after hours um, with a bunch of uh, other author or lawyer friends? Uh, what's a story that uh, comes to mind for you? Well, the one thing I wanted to share uh, with respect to this podcast in particular was an experience. And this is because I just I feel it was so unfortunate the way things went down, both politically and timing wise with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, that regardless of how you feel about her politically and her decisions, um, she was just a, she was a, she was a giant. Um, you know, she's just a, a, a live, was, was a living legend for years. Um, and we just didn't have a chance to really reflect on that. Uh, and again, there's, there's conservative judges like, like that who, you know, over time have been you know, major, major um, influencers on the, on the field. But there's just no doubt, regardless of how you view law, that she was not a major influence. And when I um, was practicing in Washington, DC, one of the things you could do would be to go get sworn in at the Supreme Court bar and that would enable you to get access to the, um, to the hearings and you didn't have to wait in line. Um, you could just go right through with members of the bar and, and sit and hear the arguments. And um, so I got sworn into the, to the Supreme Court bar and I had the opportunity to meet her after. And she was the only justice that came and uh, introduced herself and you know, uh, took pictures and was just so delightful. And she was so incredibly, you know, she's just very diminutive, but she cast this presence that was just you know, remarkable. And I know this isn't a humorous story, but it's one that I just think, you know, I, it, I wish and I hope that sometime we, we all have a chance to reflect upon her legacy. One of the, 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 the key, her key decisions um, in dissent 
and she's known for her famous dissents, was in the was in the Lily Ledbetter case, which I'm sure I forced you both to read at some point. <laughs> Definitely uh, sounds familiar. <laughs> <laughs> which which was an equal pay act, five to four decision, um, basically making it more difficult for women to bring equal pay um, claims. And she wrote just a scathing dissent. And at the end of that dissent, she called for Congress to intervene. And in President Obama's first, first legislative act uh, was to overturn uh, the Supreme Court's decision in, in uh, that case and to enact the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act. So it really shows you how acting in dissent, one voice, one person still can make a you know, dramatic, huge difference uh, if you're really willing to, um, to, to put in that time, to put in that effort. And, and I think her voice, you know, I, it was just a pleasure and it's something I'll always remember having the opportunity to meet her. So that's awesome. uh, I apologize if that's not humorous, no. but it, it's one of the lasting impacts on, on my, on my, my I mean, it, it dealt with an icon. So it, yeah. <laughs> it, it certainly passes for a great war story. I mean, and it's one of the biggest mic drops that we've had on this uh, show. It's like, Oh yeah, I was in DC, <laughs> met RBG, no big deal. Uh, <laughs> Professor Siner. Thank you again so much for uh, joining us. The book is The Virtual Workplace. You can find it on Amazon. That's where I got my copy. And uh, Professor Sander has already promised to uh, autograph it. Uh, but you can also find it on Barnes & Noble and basically wherever you get your uh, high quality books. Um, you can follow Professor Siner on Twitter at Siner, S-E-I, N-E-R, Labor Prof. I got that correct, right? 100% correct. All right. Um, I mean, you would, you would classify your book as basically a quintessential book for all general counsel. Yes. So if, you're, if you're a general counsel, you need to pick this book up. Yes, especially, <laughs> especially if, you work, if you're a general counsel for a, a, a school of higher education. Absolutely. Oh. <laughs> but no, seriously, all, all general. Yeah, I think, I think anybody working in the profession trying to grapple with these issues, it's a good primer for that, for sure. And in, in, in all seriousness, and, you know, I'm not saying this just because you're on your show or you're on the show, you know, when all of this started, you know, everyone was kind of trying to figure out what was going on and what was, you know, what would happen? Wh how are we dealing with this? And I know a bunch of my colleagues spend a lot of time looking up what other people are saying. So to have kind of everything together, um, as like you said, we probably are going to be dealing with these issues for the rest of our lives. I think it's going to be an invaluable resource. So um, like I said, I bought my copy having nothing to do with this. And uh, I know our listeners are going to buy theirs as well. So you can follow Professor Siner at Siner Labor Prof on Twitter. You can follow us at SC Law Pod on Twitter and Facebook. Follow me at Joseph P. Bias. You can follow Dane at SC Crim Lawyer. And Amber is under the weather, but she would feel better if you gave her a follow at, and you'll love this professor signer, Red Judicata, because she's a ginger. She's, she's one of my former students too. So Look, okay. look, and on behalf of all of us, we're sorry we weren't better students, but we turned out okay. Yeah, I mean, luckily, I think we're better lawyers than students. I said that to somebody uh, a couple weeks ago. It's like, thank goodness that I was able to have a career that has nothing to do with my uh, academic career because- <laughs> Don't you wish you could go back and do it again though? Yes. I oh, I'd be so oh, good I'd, now. I would okay. so much out of it, you know? <laughs> I, I am just not an academic. No, I'm a practitioner. <laughs> yes, I would, you're you, done. You, yes, you would not. If you had to send me back, there would be problems. <laughs> I, I, I like, I'm a practitioner. 
legitimately, I my attitude in law school, and I shouldn't say this to a professor, uh, was I just have to get through it because I think I'll be pretty good at the profession. <laughs> and that's not a good way. If you're listening, don't do that. That's a horrible, <laughs> it's very stressful. Yeah, now that um, you're an adjunct. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So if my students don't listen to this either, because that was a horrible advice. Well, they totally say edit this out. The, the joke is it's the only commodity where, where the person paying wants actually wants less. You know, they do. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so thank you all so much for listening. Check out our new website, sclawpod.com. You can see all of our previous old episodes. You can see the one with uh, Professor Siner's wife, and you can see the one with... Um, uh, with Vicki Esslinger, who can talk about being represented by RBG. All of our previous episodes, they're available for you at sclawpod.com or wherever you get your high quality podcasts like this one. As we close in on 100 episodes. We are getting close to 100 episodes and we're going to have to find out something to do for 100. So uh, thank you so much for listening. Thank you, uh, Joe, for uh, joining us. And we will see you next time on the Direct Examination Podcast. Thank you.